The House and Senate both come back Monday. The House will stay in session through Wednesday. The Senate will stay in session through Thursday. Uh, last, last week in the House, the House came back on Tuesday and took up and passed one bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 3485, the Global Response Act, H.R. 4445, the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act, and H.R. 4521, the Bioeconomy Research and Development Act. H.R. 4521 was originally entitled the America Competes Act, but House Republicans, after having analyzed its 2,900 pages, renamed it the America Concedes Act. This bill is the House's version of a bill that passed the Senate last year, the aim of which is purportedly to prepare the U.S. for long-range international economic competition, primarily with China. It was originally set to authorize $250 billion for scientific research and semiconductor manufacturing in hopes of improving U.S. companies' competitiveness against their Chinese counterparts. That number was bumped to $350 billion. House Republicans, led by Republican Study Committee Chairman Jim Banks, strongly opposed this measure. On Monday, the RSC released a background memo on the bill entitled Democrats' America Concedes Act, which highlighted the problems in the bill, including the bill urges the U.S. to abide by the terms of the Paris Climate Accord. The bill creates a new visa cap carve-out program that would have been even less secure than the existing visa programs that are already riddled with fraud. An unlimited number of members of the Chinese Communist Party would be eligible to take advantage of the new visa program. The bill would direct the U.S. armed forces to train to combat climate change events. The bill provides $5 million to create a chief diversity officer at the National Science Foundation and directs the National Science Foundation to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion in the technology sector. You can find the whole memo in the suggested reading. For some reason, House Democrats renamed the bill. By the time it got to the floor of the House for consideration, it was no longer named the America Competes Act. Instead, it was named the Bioeconomy Research and Development Act. On Thursday, the House considered a number of amendments to the bill, 10, in fact, of which six were adopted. The House came back on Friday and considered two more amendments, both of which were adopted, and then voted to pass the amended bill by a vote of 222 to 210 and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll come back tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House will take up H.R. 4445, the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House will take up H.R. 3076, the Postal Service Reform Act of 2021, and H.R. 3485, the Global Respect Act. In addition, the House is scheduled to consider six bills under suspension of the rules, and I anticipate a vote on a short-term continuing resolution, which we'll discuss in a few moments. Last week in the Senate, they came back to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Bridget Meehan Brennan to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Ohio. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Charles S.K. Fleming, to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Ohio, and David Augustin Ruiz to be a U.S. District Judge also for the Northern District of Ohio. And the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Rupa Ranga Putagunta to be an Associate Judge of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia for the term of 15 years, Kenya Seon Lopez to be an Associate Judge of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia for the term of 15 years, 
and Sean C. Staples to be an associate judge of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia for the term of 15 years. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm the three of them to those positions. The Senate also voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Emily M. Scott, Donald Walker Tunnage, John P. Howard III, and Lauren L. Ali Khan, all to be an associate judge of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia for the term of 15 years. Amy Gutman to be ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany. Lisa A. Carty to be U.S. representative on the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. Scott A. Nathan to be chief executive officer of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Chantal Yochman Wong to be U.S. director of the Asian Development Bank. And John Patrick Coffey to be general counsel of the Department of the Navy. Then the Senate voted to confirm by voice vote Gabriel Camarillo to be undersecretary of the Army. Andrew Philip Hunter to be an assistant secretary of the Air Force, and Shelley C. Lowe to be chairperson of the National Endowment for the Humanities for a term of four years. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Alexandra Baker to be a deputy undersecretary of defense, Rita Joe Lewis to be president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States, and Leonard Philip Stark to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Federal Circuit. Then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on one of the nominations on which cloture was invoked last week. Then the Senate will vote through the week on those nominations for which Majority Leader Schumer thinks he can get bipartisan support. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it more in a moment. Finally, later in the week, I anticipate we'll see a vote on a short-term continuing resolution. Now to the perils of a 50-50 Senate. So... Why will Majority Leader Schumer be looking for votes on which he can get bipartisan support? Because last Tuesday, the Chief of Staff to New Mexico Democrat Senator Ben Ray Lujan revealed that on the previous Thursday, his boss had checked himself into a Santa Fe hospital after experiencing dizziness and fatigue, and that he was then transferred to the University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque, where he was diagnosed as having suffered a stroke in the cerebellum. He underwent what was called decompressive surgery to ease the swelling in his cranium. The prognosis seems to be good, and he's expected to miss the next four to six weeks of Senate time as he recovers. That puts Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in a bind because there is no provision for proxy voting in the U.S. Senate. And without Lujan's vote, Schumer does not have the 50 votes needed to allow Vice President Harris to break a tie. If things go according to schedule, though, and he actually is back at his desk on the Senate floor by the middle of March, it should not cause a delay in the consideration of President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, about which we will speak more momentarily. For the history buffs among you, there have been a total of 1,994 men and women who have served in the United States Senate. Of them, 301 have died in office and another 326 have resigned before their term was complete. That works out to about 3 in 10 who have resigned or died in office, and that's about 2.7 vacancies per year. Now to the Supreme Court and that retirement announcement. On Wednesday, January 26, news leaked of a change to the composition of the Supreme Court. Justice Stephen Breyer, appointed to the court 28 years ago by President Bill Clinton, would resign his seat at the end of the current term after a successor has been confirmed. Breyer, it turns out, had informed President Biden the previous week of his plans, and apparently senior White House staff, so desperate for a change of the losing narrative that they were willing to throw Breyer under the bus, 
leaked the news before he had had a chance to share the news privately with those he wanted to. So Fox News' Shannon Bream reported on Wednesday of that week that Breyer was not pleased with the leak. The following day, Thursday, January 27, Breyer and Biden stood together at the White House and made it official. Because the Democratic Party is committed to identity politics, and because Biden is committed to the Democratic Party, Biden promised to nominate a black woman to fill the seat and said he would send the nomination to the Senate by the end of February. Ironically, the Supreme Court is scheduled to consider later this year two cases challenging affirmative action in university admissions at Harvard and at the University of North Carolina. It will be interesting to see if Biden's choice for the court, having benefited from the use of affirmative action herself, recuses herself on those cases. Perhaps more importantly, the president's declaration that he will select someone for federal employment on the basis of that individual's race certainly raises questions about whether or not his selection criteria would be a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Certainly, if he were, say, the owner of a used record store and he wanted to hire an additional employee, he couldn't post a sign in his window saying, help wanted, black females only need apply. In the week and a half since the Breyer retirement announcement was made, the rumor mill has already begun circulating a number of potential nominees. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was nominated by Biden to fill Attorney General Merrick Garland's seat on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, and South Carolina U.S. District Judge J. Michelle Childs, who has already been nominated by Biden to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and who has the very powerful and influential South Carolina Democrat Congressman James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, backing her loudly. He's not the only South Carolina Paul backing Childs. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is touting her as the kind of judge who could win some Republican votes. And South Carolina's other Republican Senator, Tim Scott, may also be willing to vote for her. Politico reported an interesting development yesterday. It seems a former law clerk for Judge Jackson by the name of Matteo Godi, quote, embarked on a Wikipedia editing spree over the past week, bolstering the page of his former boss while altering the pages of her competitors in an apparent attempt to invite liberal skepticism, according to a statement from his fellow clerks, end quote. Further, writes Politico, quote, the edits display a pattern. The page for Jackson, seen by many as a Supreme Court frontrunner, was tweaked to paint her in a more favorable light for a liberal audience, while the pages for other potential nominees, South Carolina Federal District Court Shell Childs and California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, were altered to make them potentially less appealing to a left-leaning audience, end quote. COVID lockdowns, ineffective. You may recall a government bureaucrat in a white lab coat named Anthony Fauci, who said in June of 2020, about three months into the lockdowns on an HHS podcast, and I quote, the fact that we shut down when we did and the rest of the world did has saved hundreds of millions and millions of lives, end quote. That was a fairly startling claim at the time, and now the evidence is in. And the science does not back him up. On Tuesday of last week, three economists led by Johns Hopkins University's Steve Hanke released a meta-study that analyzed studies regarding COVID-inspired lockdowns. Their findings clearly demonstrate that not only did the strict lockdown policies not work to save lives, they, quote, 
reduced COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% on average, unquote, but restricting gatherings in safe places outdoors may have been, quote, counterproductive and increased, quote, the death rate by forcing people to stay home instead with vulnerable family members. Worse, says their study, quote, while the meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted. They have contributed to reducing economic activity, rising unemployment, reducing schooling, causing political unrest, contributing to domestic violence, and undermining liberal democracy, unquote. Not surprisingly, the study's trio of authors summarize their policy recommendations simply, quote, such a standard benefit cost calculation leads to a strong conclusion. Lockdowns should be rejected out of hand as a pandemic policy instrument, end quote. Despite or more likely because of the glass shattering impact of this new study, you couldn't hear about it if you confined your news intake to what could be found on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, or The Washington Post. Against this backdrop of failing lockdown policy, the Biden administration is still putting together its own COVID response team. To that end, there will be a confirmation hearing Wednesday morning in the Senate Finance Committee for the nomination of Robert Michael Gordon to serve as an Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. Gordon's nomination is particularly noxious because this guy was so determined to lock down his state in a previous job that he was fired by Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer over his divergent viewpoints on pandemic management in Michigan. That's right, he was in favor of even stricter lockdowns than was Whitmer herself, and we all know how bad she was. So you really have to wonder, just how bad a bureaucrat would you have to have been to have been fired by her, you know? Now to government spending. Leaders of the Appropriations Committee in both the House and Senate have a little less than two weeks left to figure out the next steps on funding the government, because the continuing resolution that's currently funding government operations expires on February 18th. That's one week from Friday. The House has passed nine of the 12 appropriations bills used to fund the government, but the Senate has passed precisely zero. Neither side's leaders want to continue under a continuing resolution because that simply maintains spending levels at their current levels. And their current levels will nego were negotiated when Republicans controlled the Senate and the White House. Democrats want to spend more money on lots of domestic programs. Republicans want to spend more money on defense. So far, the so-called four corners, that is the chairman and ranking members of the Senate and House Appropriations Committees, respectively, have not yet been able to come to agreement on a top-line number. And since they cannot agree on what the overall spend will be, they cannot divide up the overall spend and tell each of the, the 12 subcommittee chairmen in each house how much their individual subcommittees will be allowed to spend. And since the subcommittee chairmen don't know yet how much their subcommittees will be allowed to spend, they cannot write their individual sections of the overall appropriations bill. What's at issue is what's called parity to wit, the split between domestic and defense spending. Republicans are insisting that the overall spend for defense be about the same as the overall spend for domestic spending, while Democrats are holding out to spend more money on domestic programs than we spend on defense. So it looks like we're not gonna be voting on an omnibus appropriations bill to determine government spending for the rest of the fiscal year. It looks increasingly like we'll have at least one more short-term continuing resolution to last for maybe a week or two 
to allow them to finish the negotiations and get the bill voted through both houses and onto the president's desk before time runs out on February 18th. The House will likely bring up this short-term CR this week because House Democrat leaders have a recess scheduled for the following week, and they won't want to force their members to come back just to vote on a short-term CR. Personally, I'd be happier if they simply extended the continuing resolution for the rest of the fiscal year, but that's unlikely to happen because this is Washington, and Washington exists for the purpose of spending other people's money. Now to Russia and Ukraine. Joe Biden has run such a rotten foreign policy that now, for the first time since Russian forces withdrew from a defeated Germany at the end of World War II, Europe faces the prospect of a major land war pitting the Red Army against Western forces. This would be a calamity for Ukraine, for Europe, for the United States, and for the rules-based international order. If Russia's dictator Vladimir Putin plans to invade Ukraine and is not deterred, by a strong U.S. and allied policy, then what is to keep Chinese communist dictator Xi Jinping from moving forcibly against Taiwan? And what is to keep Iran from moving more directly against Saudi Arabia or Israel? On last, last Monday in New York, the U.N. Security Council met, and American officials pressured their Russian counterparts over the threatened invasion of Ukraine. In the Senate, New Jersey Democrat Senator Bob Menendez and Idaho Republican Senator Jim Risch the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, respectively, have been working closely together to put together a harsh sanctions bill aimed at Russia. Menendez sees a two-tiered package. The first tier would be composed of sanctions that could be put in place right now to punish Russia for actions it has already taken, while the second tier would be composed of sanctions that would go into effect in the event Russia actually invades. Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn is advocating an aid program modeled on the World War II era Lend-Lease program in which the U.S. provided military aid to allies that later repaid the U.S. for the assistance. The sticking point between the Democrats and Republicans seems to have come down to whether or not to add to the bill sanctions against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Most Democrats, under pressure from the Biden White House, still oppose those sanctions, while most Republicans support them. Don't be surprised if, if we see the introduction of a bipartisan sanctions bill by the end of the week. Late in the week, that is on Thursday of last week, senior Biden administration national security officials, including the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Director of National Intelligence, briefed the entire House and Senate on the situation. According to what was made public from those briefings, U.S. officials anticipate that a Russian move into Ukraine could result in 50,000 civilian casualties, 5 million refugees, and Russia capturing the capital city of Kiev within two days. They don't anticipate Putin ordering an invasion, if he does so, before February 15, because that's the earliest the ground would be frozen hard enough to support the weight of Russian tanks without getting them stuck in the mud. Stay tuned. Now to China and Taiwan. The ambassador of the People's Republic of China to the United States, Quinn Gang, told an interviewer for National Public Radio a week ago Thursday that the United States could face what he called military conflict with communist China over the future status of Taiwan. This was Ambassador Quinn's first one-on-one -on -one interview since assuming his position last July. He accused Taiwan of, quote, walking down the road toward independence and added, quote, if the Taiwanese authorities, emboldened by the United States, keep going down the road to independence, it most likely will involve China and the United States, the two big countries, in a military conflict, end quote. 
Do not think for a moment that the Chinese Communist Party leadership is not watching what's happening in Ukraine very, very closely. And that's our Washington Report for this week.